Hey everyone, it's Stu here. I just wanted to say that at the end of the last episode uh, with Rich Sheridan, I said that I'd be releasing a special in December with M. Rahman uh, to introduce the Health Education England behaviour change tools they were releasing. Unfortunately, they weren't able to release those tools. Uh, that was delayed. And now we're in a pre-election quiet period because uh, apparently there's an election going on uh, in December. So what I'm going to do instead is to release an interview that I did with Professor Mike Kelly, who's the ex-director of NICE, um, instead as a Christmas bonus episode. I really loved interviewing Mike and I think it'd be a really good one to put out as a special. Uh, we geeked off for quite a bit about ha habitus, um, a sociological theory that, that I'm, I've done a lot of work with over the years. But Mike really demonstrates in this episode the broad public health knowledge and experience that he's got. So I think it'd be a great one to release for the middle of December. So I hope you look forward to that. Onwards to a great interview with Dr. Justin Varney. I think you'll see in this episode why Justin is uh, well known as a thought leader in public health. And I'm really excited to hear what you think. So please get in touch afterwards and give me your feedback. Uh, on with the show. Hi, and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast, where we look at how behavioural and social sciences are being used in the real world to help with change the public's health for good. My name's Stu King, and I have a background in public health, working in the NHS, local authorities, and Public Health England as an obesity and physical activity lead, and as a behaviour change intervention designer in my company, Busybodies. I'm excited to be creating this podcast on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, who exists to bring together professionals with an interest in behavioural and social science and public health to improve the knowledge and practices used by professionals across a range of industries and having a lasting and positive impact on individuals, families and communities. You can join the BSPHN for just £25 if you're working and £10 if you're not working, including if you're a student, to get all the benefits of being part of an active and vibrant network of behaviour change professionals and enthusiasts. So far, we've had some fascinating guests from across academia, industry and government exploring what they do and how it improves people's lives in the real world. Today I'm really excited to welcome Dr Justin Varney to the show. Um, Justin Varney is the Director of Public Health for Birmingham City Council, responsible for protecting and improving the health of about 1.2 million citizens. He's had a varied and diverse career since training as a GP in East London and then specialising in public health medicine. Justin's worked at a local, regional, national and international levels of the public health system on topics ranging from pandemic flu resilience for non-health business to developing social marketing campaigns for healthy lifestyles. His previous roles include the National Lead for Adult Health for Public Health England, Policy and Strategy Lead at the Prince's Business Charity, Business in the Community, and Thinker in Residence at the University of Sydney. Justin has a special interest in minority health issues, especially affecting lesbian, gay, bisexual and trans people, physical activity, work and health issues and domestic violence. Justin, welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Podcast. Thanks, Stu. Okay, Justin, having worked with you in the past, I know you to be somewhat of a polymath. Uh, so I'm keen to explore with you today how much of what you do now and how much of what you've done in the past is to do with behavioural science and how that's actually making its way into your work nowadays. So if I could just start by asking you to tell us a little bit more about your journey to where you are now. Sure. So I qualified originally uh, as a doctor and went into training in general practice. Uh, because of health issues, uh, that wasn't a career that I could continue in. Uh, and uh, through my journey, I discovered public health and really... Uh, enjoy the idea that I can change the world uh, hundreds, thousands and millions of people at a time rather mm. than just chip away at one person at a time in general practice. Um, I trained in public health in London. Uh, I did jobs in Greenwich, in Barking and Dagenham. I worked for the Government Office for London for a bit. Um, and then I became a consultant in East London in Barking and Dagenham. Uh, and I was the Joint Deputy Director of Public Health. I was also Head of Children's Services, Deputy Chairing our Children's Trust, as well as working in what was then a Primary Care Trust. Uh, then moved into Public Health England, uh, leading on adult and older people's health and well-being, then a uh, bit doing other portfolios and then coming back to adults. Uh, and leading national programmes on areas like physical inactivity, where we work together, mm -hmm. um, but also sexual and reproductive health, uh, domestic violence prevention, health and work and worklessness. 
Um, and then having survived a few restructures, didn't survive the last, uh, moved on to a, a role, uh, interim role in business in the community, working in the voluntary sector with the FTSE 500 businesses uh, on behalf of the Prince of Wales, which was a fascinating opportunity to yeah. see things from a business perspective. Uh, and now I'm about six or seven months into my role as Director of Public Health in uh, England's largest city. Amazing. And, and was this something, because that's a big journey, um, how much of that was planned? <laughs> um, I, so I, I think that anyone who tells you their career is perfectly planned is probably telling you a bit of a fib. Um, what I would say is um, during the period of transition out of PHE, um, when you're facing redundancy and restructuring, it forces you to consider what's really important. Mm. Um, and I've always been driven through my career by a, a sense of uh, social justice, human rights, of wanting to leave the world a better place. Um, and I've done six years in government doing that at a national level. Um, and there are things which I'm really proud I can kind of go, yes, I tweet that word or change that sentence in national policy. Um, but it was time to get a bit back to the coalface. And my time in business community helped reconnect me with that. So I applied for a couple of director of public health jobs mm -hmm. and uh, they say at this level of seniority, uh, job hunting is more like dating. Oh. Uh, it's about nice. finding, <laughs> well, and I think it's a really important actually reflection and one that I share with people that um, you get to a point where this is about the fit being more important. You don't get to a level of seniority like this without being able to do the competencies. Mm. Um, so it's not about have you got the skills, it's really are you the right match for the organisation? And um, Birmingham is a really exciting place to be. It's a city that's gone through quite a rocky past in terms of its leadership. It's coming out of that. The council, after 10 years of being in the red, is finally in the black. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge shift in the leadership style and a, an appetite uh, across partners that we're in it for the city. And this is England's second city. You know, there isn't a bigger public health job in, in the UK mm -hmm. uh, in terms of number of people. Uh, there are really entrenched challenges. This is the most diverse city in Europe. It's the city that's most likely to become a, non, uh, uh, sorry, a white minority. Uh, we're protecting that around 2030. 30% mm -hmm. of my population are under 25. It's a young city. Um, and then we have fantastic assets. We have five universities, 87,000 students, more canals than Venice. We have 500 square hectares, more green space than Paris. Uh, there's some great housing here and it's cheap. Uh, you know, why wouldn't you want to come work here? And, and all of that played out. Um, but for me, the tipping point was I came for a job interview here. Between the two interview panels, I walked to the Museum of Art uh, and Birmingham, which is just behind the council house. Um, and I'd gone through the first panel, technical panel, and thought I'd done okay. But I hadn't really got a sense of Birmingham. And I walked in and there was a, an exhibition called Women in Protest. Uh, and I walked through the exhibition and, and on the back wall was an entire wall of knitted breasts uh, in various stages. And sitting in front of it was a group of, of Muslim women uh, in traditional dress talking about it in a really animated way. And that for me said, this is a city that, that I can work with and a city that gels. So, uh, so ironically, it's breasts that brought you to Birmingham. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> uh, I will probably phrase it more, it's women that brought me to Birmingham. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually it, it, it kind of reflected, this is a city that is not afraid to be different and uh, a city that is definitely changing and a global city. And so what better place to come and make a difference? So with all those challenges, it seems that you're going to have to have um, a lot of really, really good plan planning around um, how you sort of integrate all these different sort of cultures and, and the diversity that you mentioned. How can you how can you create an environment where that diversity works versus becomes segregation and, and you know, more problems? Sure. So, um, yes, welcome to Birmingham. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm also corporately responsible for diversity and equality and community cohesion. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of your listeners will be aware that earlier in the year we've had significant tension around our schools. Uh, I really hope that by the time you listen to this, they're, they're resolved. Um, but that was kind of week two of my job, was, was um, 
representing the council in a community meeting with our LGBT community um, and advising um, and supporting our director of education and skills around managing the situation and tensions we have between our faith communities and our schools on the teaching of inclusion uh, in primary school. Um, I think the, I mean, there are a couple of things to reflect on. One is my position with the council. So um, I sit uh, with the assistant chief exec in our prevention insight and partnerships team. So I'm a strategic function of the council. I sit as a full member of our corporate management team and as a chief officer in our constitution. Um, so I have free reign to go anywhere and to work with anyone. And uh, I have, I'm really blessed to have members, uh, cabinet members and chief officers who are really want me there and want me to engage in that way. Do you mean you've got free reign internally in the council to work with planning and mm. transport and leisure, or do you mean anyone, you know, third party? Uh, Both. Th okay. Both. This is, this is, in effect, my city. I can't do my job yeah. and deliver it by this is Justin's strategy and this is Justin's solution. Yeah. Um, so part of that is around creating the tools, like the joint strategic needs assessment here is getting quite a reboot. Mm. Um, we have a programme of deep dives to explore issues which we've um, co-produced the agenda with partners. Um, because I have the engagement work stream working out with communities, meeting communities, going face to face with citizens uh, and talking about their experience. I think the other thing that's really important that is different here is that um, I'm responsible for 1.2 million people. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about putting evidence into practice, I can't do things that cost £150 per person because I have 1.2 million people. Yeah. Um, when we look at challenges like childhood obesity, I have tens of thousands of kids who are challenged with their weight. Yeah. Um, so I have to get upstream. I have to think at a, at a system level. Mm -hmm. What is it we can achieve through changing the environment, changing the way that people live their lives, yeah. rather than retrofitting interventions to try and, in effect, repair their behaviour? And that's yeah. a very different approach. And one that requires a lot of thought in terms of behavioural science, in terms of how to nudge people's behaviour, how to create environments that are uh, likely to induce better healthy sort of behaviour. So how are you going about that? How, how does what you're doing now involve behavioural science? Um, if you can tell our listeners a little bit more about that. Sure. So I think um, the way I kind of approach it is that what I have to do is create an environment in which the healthier choice is the unconscious easiest choice. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's a world in which Many of my citizens live in quite deprived areas, so one in four of our children live in poverty. Um, we have significant unemployment, um, and although um, housing compared to London is cheap, um, for many of our citizens it's unaffordable. Yeah. Um, when we talk about active travel, we have children and families that can't afford a bicycle. So, you know, we can make all the noise we want about mm. our great cycling lanes, and we've just opened our... Our, I think it's our second or third cycling uh, superhighway, which is segregated and it hits all of the evidence base for what's best practice in terms of cycling. Um, but actually, if you can't afford a bike, it's pointless. Um, so we actually we do have a scheme which is through the Active Wellbeing Society, funded initially by um, DFT, to provide access to bikes. What's great there is the bikes have GPS trackers. So what we the deal the system deal is. You get a bike, but you've got to use it. And if you don't use it, then we take it back. Um, that's also telling us quite a lot about where people cycle. Yeah. So it's done in an anonymised way, but that's the kind of, I suppose, the citizen deal that's evolving. Um, we're currently uh, changing our approach to obesity. So this city won't have an obesity strategy. What it has is a framework for creating a healthy food city and creating an active city. city. And then embedded in our um, patient-facing, in inverted commas, approach it, is access to weight management advice and support. But there is absolutely no point um, supporting people through a weight management programme if we haven't created an environment outside that supports that behaviour change. And so what period of time are you talking about? Because that is an ambitious plan. Um, what, how long are you predicting that that will take? Um, 
So I have a little thing coming down the track called the Commonwealth Games yeah. uh, in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, which is great because it creates an amplification and it creates an opportunity to accelerate some of this stuff. Um, we've, we're fortunate that we've been chosen as one of the uh, trailblazer sites or one of the five authorities. Um, that trailblazer project is focused on changing the food economy in the city mm-hmm. and looking at how do we do that by integrating health and wellbeing advice into apprenticeships, um, maximising the potential for healthy food apprenticeships and what does that look like using the leverage of inclusive growth to create a sustainable, healthy food economy. So the healthy food just isn't just in the rich bits of the city. Yeah. Um, I can take some fantastic healthy restaurants in Edgbaston and Harbour and a mm-hmm. um, little bit more pushed if we go to somewhere like King's Heath and if we get out to Acox or to the north, to Erdington, Aston, to our deprived areas or Shard End, um, there's not a healthy restaurant in sight. Um, so how do we create an economic model where those businesses survive and thrive? And then the third element is, uh, is the Birmingham basket, is to create a tracker of economic spend in the city on food and, and other products, um, because actually we know very little about what people are spending their money on. And if what I'm saying is I want to change the way that people spend money on food in the city, mm-hmm. I need to track it. And, and that's what the basket element's about. Um, I think realistically that will deliver over 10 years but there are some green shoots that come as part of that and depending on what we can leverage into this um, from other funding sources will scale or shrink depending uh, what happens. Certainly on the apprenticeships, we have a £5 million apprenticeship levy as an Mm organisation. If every apprenticeship we purchase is required to have a health and wellbeing component, we will touch tens of thousands of people in terms of giving them the education around health and well-being. If at the same time we're changing the environment and the city in which they live, then they can put that into action. But I think one of the challenges with behavioural science um, is that too often we focus on the nudge without considering the wider context in which the person who's being nudged live. And there's no point trying to nudge someone if you're simply nudging them out the front door and straight into a chicken shop next door. True, true. And easy to do as well. Yeah. Um, I'm interested a little bit as well in, in your... Your title, the thinker, the thinker in residence. Oh, yeah. I feel like we should all be thinkers <laughs> in residence. Um, tell what, 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 how did that come about, and what does that mean? And do you get to go to Sydney often? Um, I don't get to go to Sydney often. It was a, it was a one-time job, although they keep trying to get me back. Um, <clears throat> so it, it came about because I gave a talk in Bangkok, an international conference on fiscal activity and health, and. Um, it was the ISPA Congress on Physical Activity and Health, and we were, I was there because we were bringing it to London next. I was there as the official recipient. So I came home with a lovely giant stuffed elephant. Um, but at the end of my uh, presentation, um, a group of Australians came up, a mixture of uh, academics and uh, people from the voluntary sector from the Australian Heart Foundation, who said, uh, your thinking is quite radical, from an Australian perspective, um, we really think what you've done in England in terms of joining up cross-government policy and uh, taking an approach which is about weaving it in uh, to other people's business is really imaginative and we'd really love to get you down to Australia. Would you consider it? Um, and, you know, people have these conversations with you and you kind of go, yeah, 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 yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, I'll believe it when the plane ticket arrives. Yeah. Um, so anyway, about uh, probably five, four months later, I got an email going, uh, so we, we've got the funding, will you come? Uh, we want you for a month. Oh. Um, so I had to negotiate with my boss at PHE to let me go for a month. Mm-hmm. Um, the deal was that I continued to do some work while I was out there. Um, that's my top tip, never do an international gig in a different time zone and do your day job at the same time because you get no sleep. When you're switching off in Sydney, everyone's getting to work in London. 
Um, so you come home from work to probably 30, 40 emails to sort out, and then you wake up in the morning and they've done a day's work for which you have to respond. Anyway, um, it was a great opportunity. Um, I was uh, based in the University of Sydney, working with uh, the state government in New South Wales, the Australian Heart Foundation flew me up to Canberra for a few days with the Premier's office and the Premier's advisors. Um, I think what was great was I kind of said to them when I started, what do you want? Do you want a report at the end? What is it? Uh, you know, what's, what's the job description? And they said, the job description is we want you to be intellectually disruptive. That must have been quite easy for you, actually, because you are quite intellectually disruptive. <laughs> um, I would say it, it's easy and it's slightly scary. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting because kind of I said, well, what's the combination? And the combination... It was a dinner in Sydney hosted by the Australian Heart Foundation and I literally was asked to do five minutes a kind of reflection opening comments and uh, so that's hard because you kind of go I've spent a month pinging around the place yeah. exploring a bit um, and what is it you what are the, the thing key messages you want to get across and, and my key messages to them were very much around um, you know, joining up government is about understanding other people's agendas and, and weaving yours into theirs. Um, quite shocked that no one's talked about Aboriginal health in the entire month that I've been here, mm. or the complexity of the difference between delivering intervention in a city like Sydney versus at the other end of the state of New South Wales, Broken Hill, which is in the outback, and takes a day and a half to get to, which is why I didn't get to go to Broken Hill, mm. even though I tried, um, is are two radically different policy paradigms mm. and, and different lived experiences, and we're not having that conversation. Um, and the third is the complete absence of a conversation about culture in the context of physical activity, um, and culture both in the context of arts and culture, but culture also in the context of framing physical activity in people's lives mm -hmm. rather than where we traditionally entrench into which is sport yeah. or an intervention um, and yeah so that was and, and that led on to a really interesting and quite heated debate over dinner um, but yeah it was a great opportunity and a lovely thing to have on the CV yeah um, great title. Yeah, yeah. Thinker um, in residence. What a great title. Yeah, it's a bit like being artist in residence, but with your brain yeah. and uh, and your mouth. So um, yeah, great opportunity and and definitely one I'd recommend if anyone asks you to do that kind of role, jump at it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because when you said that um, they said that you, your views are progressive against the backdrop of what what goes on in Australia. I sort of think of Australia as being quite quite forward thinking if you the, the, Griffith University for example have a lot of um, social marketing stuff there's really really great behavioural science going on there I, I've, I've spoken to quite a few of them and, and I just think that Australia often have quite well I feel like they have quite forward thinking views um, I don't know did you think that when they said that to you or what did you find when you were there so I think um, one well a couple of things to kind of flag and I was born in Australia so I left when I was two uh, hence I don't have an Aussie accent but I do have an Aussie passport um, as well as a British one which has made the work visa much easier um, one scale um, you know I experience in Birmingham here is the difference between uh, a neighbouring authority that might have 200,000 people and I've got 1.2 million um, the federal states in Australia have huge level of autonomy from federal government um, and Australia really is a commonwealth of states, um, more akin to a, an American model. So where there are gems of good practice, they don't necessarily translate across multiple states. Um, even when there are gems of good practice in a city, they don't translate to the whole state. So um, probably Victoria is the best example where they are trying to do that. Uh, they're one of the few states that kept their public health agency um, in 2009 when the National Public Health Agency was deleted in the change of uh, government. Um, but in most states, um, I would say you've got pockets of good practice, but actually it's not mainstreamed. And people are not wrestling with that real tension of scale. So Australia has some real gems, 
But if you take the whole country, um, that's not translating into a whole system approach. And, and that was particularly what they wanted me to kind of emphasise with the Premier's office. Um, I should say this happened before, well, while, while they were developing their new sport and physical activity strategy. Um, and what's nice is kind of a year later when people came to London uh, for the ISPA conference, uh, some of the Australians said, you do not realise quite how much impact you had and actually things you visit did change stuff. And that's lovely because I kind of came back and went and thought I had some nice interesting conversations, I got to see some lovely parts of the city, but um, you know, have they wasted their money? Um, and their feedback was absolutely not. So that's part of recognising that often the conversations you have have way more impact than you realise at the time. Mm, good point. So I just want to I want to move things on a little bit to see um, what your views are about how behavioural science or behaviour change science is being used across the industry. Mm -hmm. So the public health industry, I know you've got a good uh, good grounding across the whole thing, pretty much from your time in PhD. Sure. Um, so how do you think it's being used in the industry at the moment? So I think it's patchy at best. Um, I think partially because I think the, um, the, the kind of science bit, the academic world of behavioural science, is becoming a bit polarised between three different paradigms. Mm. Uh, there's a digital paradigm um, that is definitely in the ascendancy at the moment. Um, you, um, the Prevention Green paper that was published uh, in the summer is so strong on digital, digital, digital. Yeah. Yet we know at the moment the evidence base around what works in terms of digital prevention is poor uh, and underdeveloped. Mm. Um, there's a paradigm which is at individual behaviour change, um, which is still somewhat rooted in kind of 1970s, early 80s smoking cessation theory. Um, and hasn't really evolved in the context of people's um, really quite complex concepts of self, place and belief um, and the multiple triangulations that people do now about benefit and peer norm mm -hmm. which is quite different to where it was at the time that the kind of theoretical frameworks were developed um, and then I think the third paradigm is, is the behaviour change of place um, and the environment society in which we live. And again, that's probably the least well-developed because that still harks back to this is all about seatbelt legislation, mm. um, slightly evolved into plain packaging, um, and a little bit of kind of nudge theory about how you label nutritional things and you know mark things a treat in a canteen. Um, but it's not got to kind of seismic shifts. And, and I think the struggle... In, in a sense, in the behaviour change world, is what it's hooking back to continually if this is what success looks like, is legislative reform. Mm -hmm. And actually in today's global digital culture in which people are as likely to be as fluent in what's going on in their country of heritage as they are in their country of place, that's not agile enough. Um, so I think the industry is challenged at the moment. I think you get, um, I think also austerity means people are firefighting with the budgets they've got. Um, so if you can't show real-time return on investment, um, and you've seen some quite um, significant uh, withdrawals of things like specialist smoking cessation services. You know, several local authorities in the country decommissioned them. You smoking cessation is probably the area where we have the best evidence mm. for behaviour, just for specialist targeted behaviour change support, and yet it's being disinvested. Um, so I think for the behaviour change sector, in a sense, that is a really loud warning bell of reframe the narrative, mm. change the positioning, because if smoking cessation can fall, and it's not that it even moved into an integrated behaviour change service, it just fell. Mm. If that can fall, anything can fall. I, I mean, that's largely a function of the £700 million or so of cuts that have happened over the last few years in public health. What do you think the, what do you think the way back is from the, all of those cuts over the last sort of three or four years? Um, so first of all, I would say never try to find a way back. Okay. You, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, you... you I think um, 
uh, a previous chair of the Health Select Committee once said, um, life has never been as fast as it is today and it will never be this slow again. Mm. Really, really useful maxim to live by. Yeah. Uh, I think you could tweak it and say something along the lines of, um, we've never had as little money as we have today and we will never have this much again. So you think it's going to continue in the way it's going? Well, I think the reality is that um, when you look at public sector finance, there, there are basically two options. Um, uh, well, three, perhaps, if you go with a radical, um, perhaps revolutionary approach of stop having children. Um, but you know, I think that's unlikely, is the population will continue to grow. And the population is reluctant to pay more tax. Uh, and the population is living longer. And therefore the pressures on the public purse are increasing. So your options are you either pay more tax or you ration services. Those are the only two options. Because you've either got to have more money or you've got to give people less support. Or, or reconstitute the way the money's apportioned. So we tried, yeah, I mean, I think we tried rebalancing the books. The problem is, of course, prevention rarely pays back in real time. So although we know that the most cost-effective things you can do are things like breastfeeding, immunisation. I mean, immunisation is a great example. You know, incredibly cost-effective, saves lives, well evidence-based. You know, one of the WHO's top international things to do. And yet, post-2013, the investment that's gone into immunisation has just declined and declined. Now, that's even within it, sitting within the NHS. As a responsibility. The flip is you take something like sexual health services, which went to local government, where money's declined but efficiency's gone up, um, certainly in terms of the number of people tested and the progression we're making towards um, a zero ambition for new HIV infections. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not all about money, and I think you know we're probably at the limit of what we can do being smarter with what we've got, given that coming over the curve is an ageing population who don't have enough pensions um, to survive as long as they're going to survive, um, a group of 40 and 50-year-olds today who have comorbidity at 45, who will require complex care packages by the time they're 65, yeah. you know, whereas the previous generation didn't require that level of care until they hit 80, so there were fewer of them. Um, so I think we will hit a, a really fundamental crisis of, of state around do we pay more tax or do we let more people die in poverty? Um, and that's a real challenge. Um, and it's one, you know, we've had one list, we had the Black Report, we've had Aitchison. You know, we're not short on reports that predict that this potential outcome of the future, mm. yet what we're short of is the hard policy decisions that go, actually prevention fundamentally is the only thing that gets us out of this. Um, we've had some steps towards it. Reformulation is a good example. Um, you know, I don't think about how much salt or sugar is in uh, my cookie. Um, the fact that it's gone down by a gram, I don't notice. But actually that does make a big impact. That's that unconscious behaviour change that's really important. And it's at a scale that in the population will make a difference. Um, but I do think we're going to hit a period in which the, the inequalities in society will get more difficult. And that will create a fundamental question of do we, are we prepared to give up a little bit more each for the greater good? Or will we see increasing polarisation? We need a free-thinking... Uh, th what is it? We need a thinker in residence. <laughs> um, I don't think there's a shortage of think tanks in this space. <laughs> perhaps not. Um, so what are the, um, what are the best, uh, and if you've got any worst practices that you've come across in the industry in terms of how behavioural science is being used or completely ignored? Okay. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll start with what I consider worst behaviour and I'll come back to good because it's always easier to have a name first. Yeah. Um, so I think worst behaviour, and I see it perhaps most acutely in employers trying to sort out staff wellbeing. 
Okay. So um, someone walks along with a lovely example of something. It looks beautiful. They brand a staircase. They give you an app. Or um, they've got uh, yoga classes uh, and a yoga app and a desktop yoga thing. Um, and the business goes, great, yeah, let's have that. And there's, it might be a bit of tenuous evidence attached to it, but there's usually some, we like the instructor and we like the sandwiches type evaluation yeah. piece. And people buy it. Um, and they put it into their workplace. Uh, and what happens generally is all the people who normally go and do yoga or go to the gym uh, do the intervention, and the people that don't, don't. Uh, and then after a while they look at it and, and they either kind of look at it and go, yeah, it's going great because we've still got people going, but they're not looking at actually who's going. Um, or they go, well, the next round of budget cuts, this can be chopped, it doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, so, and what they're ignoring is what the evidence base says. And the evidence base says, that actually, if you haven't got clear line management, if you're not co-producing with staff, if you've not done any basic assessment of need... Um, and you haven't put in some fundamentals like occupational health, then you can't yoga your way out of bad line management. And it's a phrase I use a lot, you know. Um, but I see it a hell of a lot of, of people trying to buy their way into behaviour change without really thinking about what the structure and the system that sits around the individual is. Yeah, not willing to do the work to actually properly understand it. Yeah, the issues. And, and you know, and I have to say, earlier in my career, I've done it myself. You know, I, I bought uh, uh, vouchers for a, one of the main providers of weight management services, shall we say, mm -hmm. um, in a community in which you know, every third shop was a chicken shack. And then we wonder why people put on weight after they, you know, they might stay really well while they're on the course, but 12 months later they're back to their weight plus some. Yeah. So unless we have a, a real conversation about that, so I see that bad practice a lot. Let's buy something because it's shiny and pretty and it ticks a box of we've done something yeah. rather than stepping back. Um, where I see good practice, I think there's some really interesting stuff coming out from many local authorities at the moment. Wigan's the one that's always held up at the citizen deal. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are others in that place at the moment as well. Obviously, I'd say Birmingham because I'm here and we're doing stuff. Um, but I do think, you know, some of the stuff we're doing on things like shifting the food economy is, is quite different. And is really taking that kind of behavioural change to a different level. Um, I think we're seeing some interesting stuff from the digital world um, about evaluation. Um, so interesting stuff in digital about people like Tim Anstis. Um, who are really trying to build evaluation around what they're doing for behaviour change. Um, I think also the nuance we're starting to see between recognising standalone digital behaviour change, uh, conscious and unconscious. Um, you know, the Microsoft Lab evaluation of Pokemon Go is probably the, um, one of the standout bits of evaluation for me of behaviour change through digital that's consistently ignored. I haven't seen it. So, yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Totally Google it. Um, so basically, do you know what the rough the rough yeah, yeah, yeah. so the key findings were basically um, the primary user of Pokemon Go are middle aged white men who are inactive. I, I did it. <laughs> so, I am more active, but I, yeah. I did enjoy it. Um, what it also showed was because what they did basically was they looked at Pokemon Go users first of all to understand who are the main users of Pokemon Go, mm -hmm. um, and then secondly, um, they benchmarked them against users of health and fitness apps. Yeah. And they tracked longitudinal change in behaviour. So what they showed was, in those white middle-aged men um, who played Pokemon Go, and they defined a heavy user as logging in, I think, at least twice a day. So it's not like the majority of gaming studies, which are done on like 13 hours of straight gaming. You know, these people who logged in twice a day, two or three times a day. Um, they showed they saw a sustained increase in step count, that that was the, the measure they were using, I think it was between two and 3,000 steps a day. So that's a lot. That's For someone who's previously inactive, that's huge. Mm. Um, what they also showed was that people who used health apps saw no sustained difference from their baseline. So basically what they found was that people were using, so they took, I think, four or six health apps as a comparator, as a control group, um, their baseline entry of physical activity was higher to begin with and it got no better. So they just changed their physical activity to 
Pokemon Go instead of whatever. No, so they weren't. So, these, so sorry, I wasn't clear. These were people. So what the control group weren't using Pokemon Go. Oh, sorry. Oh, right, apps, I see. Right. So what they were trying to say was, is Pokemon Go as effective as a health app? Right. I see. Sorry, I thought you were comparing them. In no. Way. So so the idea basically is, and this is why I talk about digital conscious unconscious behaviour mm. change. Mm. Pokemon Go is a really good example of unconscious behaviour change. Yeah. And gamification generally. Well, I mean, it's gamification, but it's. I don't think, bluntly, the originators of Pokemon Go thought about physical activity until they were in probably their second or third iteration. Really? Because it's only in the second or third, I forget which generation it was, where you incubate eggs by walking further. That's interesting, because I think of Nintendo, of all of the gaming mm -hmm. sort of consoles, as being... The one that is a little bit more socially responsible like that in trying to get people to be more socially connected and um, active with the Wii and the Switch and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting because you look at the Wii and go, did it achieve what, you know, has the Wii really made a market footprint? And it, unfortunately, I think it didn't because I think the technology moved too quickly. Mm. It's, you know, wearables and particularly wearables that can interact in, in the kind of Internet of Things way takes us into a completely different space. But I think coming back to the core point of this is that you know, Pokemon Go unconsciously gets you physically active. And you do it not because of physical, physical activity is not mentioned in any real way except for the number of steps you need to do to incubate an egg. Yeah. You know, you've got middle-aged men walking 30,000 steps to incubate an egg. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and when you say it like that, everyone's thinkers and, and you, your listeners will be smiling and going, mm. you know, if you'd have written that on a pitch board, <laughs> yeah. everyone would yeah. go, you're joking, yeah. you know, middle-aged white men are not going to walk 30,000 steps to incubate a digital egg. You know, if they did, Tagamochi would have made us all skinny. Mm. Um, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> well, actually, in reality, it does, but it does because you don't tell them that's what they're doing. And it's that unconscious nudge. I think what's interesting is the conscious nudge space, um, and there are lots of products on the market that are kind of offering rewards for step counts. Mm. and those kind of like a beat the street type sort of approach. Yeah, beat the street slightly different, I think. Um, I'm thinking, um, you know, the kind of reward apps that are out there, um, and I'm trying to remember one to give you a kind of name hook, um, but they, they're more about going, if you do so many steps... Um, do you, you get a kind of you get points and points mean prizes and that kind of plays out. Mm. Um, and the reality, I can't find it on my phone at the moment. I have hundreds of these apps, as you can imagine. Mm. Life, um, life sum is it not? It's not no, but there are there are a whole range of them. Um, but the key bit that's interesting is that very none of them yet, as far as I've seen, have been able to prove impact on inactive adults. So what you get is you get people who are already training for a marathon do it and they can afford a TV. Great. Um, you know, it's a bit like incentivizing gym vouchers. It works well for people who go to the gym. doesn't make any difference to people who don't unless you put wrap around it. Beat the Street is slightly different because, and this is, I suppose, the second point around where digital is. So you have digital conscious, unconscious, but then you have digital plus real. Um, and I think that's the hybrid space that, that many businesses are now getting into. Mm -hmm. Beat the Streets were in that space early yeah, around right. understanding the hybrid nature. Um, so for those who don't know what Beat the Street is, it's um, like a, a, an RFID card that you go and tap on various boxes placed around a city or, or a location and you're part of a team and they all add up to prizes and your team can win prizes, etc. And the key bit to, to kind of highlight is that the prizes aren't individual. The prizes are for a community. Yeah. So there might be the prize is money to refurbish a local park or a playground, something like that. And, mm -hmm. and that's the interesting space for Beat the Streets. And that's why the, the on-the-ground facilitation is really important, is that it also ties into a community cohesion agenda. Yeah. So actually what you're trying to do is hook into people's motivation for physical activity is not physical activity. The motivation is they want their park refurbished. Yeah. And if that means running around the park six times and tapping in, tapping out, that's great. Um, you know, in Birmingham at the moment, we have kids who have marched on City Hall now twice around air pollution and environmental sustainability. Mm. And you can bet your life I'm using that as a narrative to get them out on their bikes and walking yeah. and nagging mum and dad to walk to school rather than take the car. 
Because if that's the narrative that achieves the behaviour change, great. I think that, for me, is the where we need to evolve some of the behaviour change conversation. Um, it's, and it's the evolution from the conversation that says, what's important to you about your health, mm. versus what's important to you. Yeah, I understand. And so you're saying, so that's, that's quite good, actually. Well, it's really good. It's, it's quite opportunistic. It's using a, what could be considered a crisis and, and turning it into something that's free and solves two issues, yeah. <laughs> getting out, being active, and the, the pollution. Absolutely. Issue. Well, it, you know, in public health it has to be opportunistic. That's the nature of austerity. That's the nature of actually how you achieve your job. And, you know, one of the reasons I was in Australia was exactly my approach is to weave as much as I can into other people's jobs, other people's policies to achieve their outcomes. Because if everything we try to achieve sits in a policy that has either health or public health as a title, mm. we will never achieve the system change we need. Yeah, I remember being quite frustrated working for you, actually, when um, <laughs> you, would, you would forever be doing stuff for other people to our detriment, as far as, far as I saw it, because I was focused very much on the one agenda. And I was often frustrated by the fact that we, we do, you'd done something else and then saw later, you know, not to make your head any bigger but yeah. saw later that there was actually a really good rationale for doing it in that way um, and then just keeping quiet <laughs> and thinking okay maybe next time I'll keep quiet but I never did because I could never really see past our own agenda I, well and I think that's a real challenge for the, the industry in general yeah. um, I think you know almost I have the converse and, and I know many of you my teams over the years have told me mm. I, you know I need to work better to explain the galaxy that I see in the context of your star system um, because when you are trying to deliver it's very easy to just focus what's in your star system and therefore you don't see the constellations around you and the patterns and the opportunities and that comes to some extent that comes and this sounds a weird way to describe it but it comes with senior leadership yeah um, but it's also one of the joys of public health and it's one of the, I suppose, one of the things I'd really encourage your listeners to reflect on. We talk a bit about becoming a one-trick pony. Um, if you are a one-sector pony and all you know is physical activity or weight management or mental health, mm. um, all you do is behaviour change. Um, you can quite easily develop kind of group think mentality within the team or the organisation. Um, and that can leave you really vulnerable to policy shifts or to shifts in funding. Um, and I've always tried to have multiple areas of interest. Um, because in order to do my job, but also because there may be something that I learned from an approach to economic inclusion, mm. or I learned from listening to Women's Hour, which I do quite a lot because it, it opens my eyes to all sorts of things that I wouldn't know about. Mm, mm. Um, or sitting down with an academic. Um, you know, I was just at, at University of Birmingham um, and met a lady, uh, Professor Widows, who's written a book called Perfect Me about new global norms of body image. Um, what does that mean in global concepts of beauty and how that's creating um, social pressure? She's a, a, a philosophy ethicist which is a fascinating job in itself. Mm. Um, but for me, that's relevant and has resonance because in the Commonwealth Games, we'll have beach volleyball, which is probably the most extreme body beautiful sport there is. Yeah. Um, so over the next three years, can we use the way that she thinks and views the world mm. to create a conversation about body image in the city so that we can reframe this in a positive view and get benefit for it? Um, it's that joining of the dots and the weaving of the jewels together into pieces of jewellery that is, is the art of public health. Um, but I would encourage everyone to listen to a podcast that challenges you, watch a programme that isn't in your comfort zone, see a play, read a book. You know, with technology today, our ability to tap into something from the different side of the world, from a very different cultural paradigm... And even if all you do is commit to one hour a week of listening to something that challenges you, mm. do it because it will really change the way you work. Okay, great. So just uh, if, I, if we move things on to um, what it is that you are 
most excited or curious about in the behavioural sciences or in behaviour change science or just in what you do and how it's being applied um, and how it's changing people's lives? Okay. So I think the thing that I'm most excited about at the moment is cross-cultural behaviour change. Okay. Um, so Birmingham is really a global city and we have uh, over 230 odd languages in the city. Um, we have you know, people from pretty much every country in the world. And what's incredible, and I sat with a group of women from uh, Spark Hill, Sparkbrook, Spark Hill, I always get the names wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it's still early days on the geography. Yeah. And anyway, but a group of probably about 10 Asian women, I would say, ranging from 40 to 65. Uh, most of them were very poor English. And we talked about their lives. And, and some of that was quite distressing for me to hear. You know, I've been very fortunate in many ways in my life, so hearing about domestic violence around uh, isolation of stigmatisation and marginalisation really hard. Um, but what was really fascinating for me out of that conversation, one of the things, was uh, they talked about um, the countries that they come from. All of them are part of WhatsApp groups yeah. um, with people from their country of, of heritage. Um, and they have full insight and they gossip like hell about what's going on back in whatever village or town yeah, or city yeah. it is. Um, and they are as fluent in what's going on in Pakistan or India or Afghanistan as they are in what's happening three streets away in Birmingham. So when we get into a world of talking about behaviour change, um, and a good example of this is in the context of what we're doing in the city on mental health, with one of our high-risk groups being Polish and Eastern Europeans. When I talk about mental health here, we use words like well-being. They don't translate. There is not a Polish word which translates into the word of well-being. But many, added to that, many of our citizens go backwards and forwards or on their WhatsApp group or Facebook groups yeah. where their social norms, their belief patterns are being driven by their country of heritage, not by their country, by their association with place. And I've got to develop behaviour change in that dual parallel, in that paradigm. So we formed a, a partnership with Warsaw in Poland to start to do that. Mm -hmm. um, we're working with India and Pune in India on food environments and out-of-home food purchasing behaviour. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to change the social narrative of India mm -hmm. from working with one city, but it gives me a huge amount of insight into what the social norm belief behaviour change paradigm is yeah. In India, so when I'm approaching people here, I've got that as a kind of dual running track. And for me, that's the new world of behaviour change. Millennials are the most ethnically diverse, most likely to be mixed cohort. The gen alphas that are coming after them are even more so. Their concept of a global identity is fundamental, and that changes our approach to behaviour change. And that, for me, is the exciting space to be. Wow, that's, I didn't expect you to say that. <laughs> actually, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> um, so uh, I want to bring us over to your uh, personal life uh, a little bit. So how do you use um, your experiences in the public health sector and also particularly around you know, understanding behaviour in your personal life? Um, so I suppose... Um Two things I'd say. One is um, over many years of, of kind of coaching, therapy, mentoring, um, I've got better insight to my triggers um, and, and understand what triggers unhealthy responses for me. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I'm perfect at managing them, but I've got much better insight to understand that. Yeah. Um, I think the, the second thing is I've built in some things into my life which force me to take time out and probably the most important one of those is my personal trainer yeah um you know, i train two hours a week i train at stupid o'clock in the morning um because it's the one time that doesn't get bumped by anything else mm -hmm. i start training at six which means i get up at five mm -hmm. um twice a week um but for an hour two hours a week i don't do any emails i don't look at my phone i'm not doing anything else apart from focusing on myself um and that is really important. Um, and it's a small change, but through everything else that changes, um, you know, and things you can control, things that you can't, I think my reflection has been 
having something which is your kind of foundation rock of behavior yeah um that keeps you kind of um with it and on track is really important and and more and more i've recognized that for me that's my hook that's my space and if i'm in a good routine with that then my sleep pattern gets better because in order to get up at five i have to go to bed at a reasonable time yeah um and then once that starts to flow then my eating pattern gets better etc but um you know, I think um, recognising my triggers and, and committing to that two hours a week. And because I pay for it, you know, that, that helps. Um, although personal training is cheaper in Birmingham than London. Um, Get more. Yeah, well, it is. Um, it, you know, those things actually, I think, it, understanding your triggers and putting in a foundation block is really important. Yeah, so like uh, something that kicks it all off, if you like. So you've got a good a good habit that's sort of around which others sort of form naturally yeah i think also it's, it's having an anchor i'd probably describe it more as an anchor than a kickoff point yeah i mean i think always and there are periods when i've stopped training because of illness um and they've been really difficult to restart and um you know recognizing sometimes it takes a couple of full starts and i think too often we try and get purists around behavior change and go you must do this you must do that Find what works for you as an anchor and anchor it. And once you've anchored it, you can build off that as a foundation. But it's working out what's the core anchor, and it might be going to bed, it might be that you need to see your friends once a week, or you might need to go to see a film, or whatever it is. Find an anchor, mm -hmm. because actually, without an anchor, it's really hard to do anything else. Great. And... Speaking of how to find an anchor, with Christmas coming up around the corner, um, what can people do to make sure they don't just write the whole month off food, event parties, alcohol? How can they, um, how can they keep that anchor during a time of, of or almost disarray for some people? Sure. Um, so, I mean, first of all, let's acknowledge the challenge, you know, and, and it's not so much a trigger in a negative sense, but we have a society in which um, food and celebration are totally connected. So be realistic about that um, you know, if you're trying to manage your weight um, that doesn't mean abstain from everything because you'll just be miserable mm -hmm. you know but choose a side plate rather than a main plate or a reasonable size plate I mean you know, one of the things when I've been going through trying to do better things on my eating behaviors was switching to a more sensible size dining plate I have some beautiful 12 inch plates yeah. but they're not great when you're trying to do portion management um, you know, some of those simple tricks that, that kind of make you don't feel like you're left out, you just you're managing your portion stuff in a sensible way. But I do it anytime, not just at Christmas. Um, the things that I think most of us lose during the festive season, probably the most important one is sleep. Um, it goes out of the window, and whether that's because you're partying or you're juggling our new modern blended family arrangements and multiple in laws and different bits of the country, etc. Or simply the work deadlines because everyone's cramming in to get in just before time runs out and people go on holiday, um, is commit yourself to sleep. Um, I would say that if you do nothing else over the Christmas season, make sure that you're getting the right amount of sleep and that you're protecting your sleep. And, and that means make trade-off decisions. If I'm going to go out this night, tomorrow night I'm not. Um, you know, but it is... It's choose the anchor thing for you. Yeah, some good advice there for this festive season. Um, and just, so finally, uh, where can people go to find out a little bit more about your project or your work? Sure, so um, look me up on LinkedIn as Justin Varney uh, or follow me at Twitter at drjv75. Great. Um, so that's all we've got time for. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I should say that this is one of the most interesting places we've recorded. We... In the beautiful building that is the... Uh, what's the, what's okay, the name of this? This is the Council House. Council House. For Birmingham City Council. Yeah, beautiful building, lovely high ceilings, terrible to record in. So we're sitting in the Chief Exec's toilet right now and you can hear the, the seagulls in the middle of Birmingham. Birmingham seagulls, yes. Don't National know why there's... Treasure. Not sure why there's Birmingham <laughs> seagulls. Couldn't believe that. Uh, but yeah, I've had the, the, apparently there are. And... <laughs> Um, so I just wanted to say thanks for, for your time. It's been great to hear about your journey through public health. Um, you know, all the stuff. I love this f f 
fingering residence thing. I think that's great. But I really, I think it, the listeners will find it really interesting hearing about your uh, unique approach and particularly your forward thinking approach to weaving things together from different um, departments and different organisations and even different industries because yeah, that really is going to be the, the key to us being able to be sustainable in the future and actually use our limited resources in a way that actually makes a difference in people's lives. Um, so thank you very much to Justin. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree it's been uh, fascinating hearing about his, his uh, journey. We'll be back again next month with another interesting guest who's working in the field of changing people's behaviour in the real world. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget that you can join the BSPHN on www.bsphn.org.uk for just £25 if you're working and £10 if you're a student or unwaged. This gets a lot of benefits including discounted fees for events, workshops and CPD events, access to a network of professionals from a range of fields, regular publications and interviews with top experts in the field. You can also sign up for my blog at www.busybodies.com forward slash blog for my views on public health, behaviour change and views on running a company with the express aim of doing meaningful work and having fun whilst doing it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review on iTunes. It will take less than a minute and may help someone to discover the great work that's going on around the world in behaviour change. Please also subscribe on iTunes and be sure to tell people through your social media channels. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I'm on at Stu underscore King underscore HH and I look forward to hearing from you really soon. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas.